You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Daniela Brill, Tech at Work writer for the Washington Post. Today, we're going to discuss the state of small business in America. A little later, I'll be joined by the mayor of New Bedford, Massachusetts. But first, I'd like to start with Pinky Cole. She's the founder and CEO of Slutty Vegan, a small restaurant chain that specializes in vegan food. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Pinky. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. Yeah, and remember, we always want to hear from you, our audience. You can share your thoughts and questions for guests on Washington Post Live by tweeting at Post Live. So, Pinky, let's start off with your this company you've built. You've built it up to be now worth an estimated $100 million. Can you briefly tell us how you started Slutty Vegan and... Tell us a little bit about the name. So I'm still here trying to figure out how I started Slutty Vegan. Um, and please forgive me. I just had a grand opening yesterday, so I've been screaming all day. Um, but this concept really came out of nowhere. I've always been an entrepreneur. I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. And about four years ago, I was in my bedroom and I came up with this idea out of nowhere called Slutty Vegan. And I called my friends up and I said, I want to create a concept that is plant-based, but it has a raunchy, racy flavor, but not typically what a vegan restaurant would have. And I want to call it Slutty Vegan. And all of my friends, they were like, oh my goodness, Pinky, that's a really, really good idea. And do you know when I did that, I didn't realize I was solving a universal problem. And that was figuring out a way to crack the code of helping people to, to reimagine food. And when I did that, literally everything went up from there. So for the people who don't know what the business is, it is a 100% plant-based burger joint that was born and bred in the heart of Atlanta. And now we have multiple locations in Atlanta and in several other cities as well. So you faced some challenges, though, in this process. I understand um, there was one of your restaurants lasted two years in the Harlem section of New York. Uh, it shut down in 2016. Tell me a little bit about the lessons you learned there. <laughs> Less than so many. Um, so I had my restaurant from 2014 to 2016, and it was called Pinky's Jamaican and American Restaurant, located in the heart of Harlem. And it was my first opportunity being a restaurateur. Now, half of the time, I did not know what I was doing, right? Um, I went to Google, went to YouTube, and learned everything about the restaurant industry. But what I had and what I still have is I got heart, and I'm confident. So even in the times where I didn't know what I was doing, I always had confidence. So while I had this restaurant, it was seemingly successful. I had lines down a block. People would come. People loved the business. And then I realized that I was putting my blood, sweat, and tears in a business. I knew nothing about restaurant industry. So the best thing that happened to me, which I didn't realize at the time, was I had a grease fire. And in that grease fire, everything caught on fire, lost everything because I did not have fire insurance. And because I didn't have fire insurance, I wasn't able to salvage all of the items inside of the space. So I literally went flat broke, lost everything, and left the restaurant industry. But what I learned in that moment is I learned resilience. I learned that even in the hardest of times, you do not give up. You do not throw in the towel. You pick that towel back up and you keep working because obviously whatever happened, happened for a reason. I did a commencement speech earlier this year, and I used the acronym FAIL. Failing is not failing at all, but it's finding aspiration in the losses. So through that perceived failure, it taught me how to be a better entrepreneur. It taught me how to make sure that I had all the things that I needed in line. 
um, and be more responsible. And I'm happy that it happened that way. So I don't look at it as a tragedy. I look at it as an opportunity to learn. And I tell people it was the most expensive school that I ever went to, but it was the best school to learn about business, entrepreneur, and me, myself as an individual. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I actually had a question about turning failure into success, but it sounds like you you wrapped it all up very nicely right there. Um, I do want to ask you for a little bit more advice, though, uh, for would-be entrepreneurs who want to start their business in today's economy. You know, it's, it's a challenging situation right now. What advice would you give them? Even when you know everything, you know nothing. I'm learning that in business. I don't care how many books you read. I don't care how much you research on the internet. You got to keep reading. You got to keep researching because there never comes a moment where you know everything. And the minute that you feel like you know everything, that's when you begin to lose. So to the entrepreneurs that are watching this program, you got to continue to chase, chase, chase what you're chasing, right? If it's success that you're chasing, not money because we don't chase money. If it's opportunity that you're chasing, continue to research, continue to do the work. Never get comfortable, never get lazy, because I promise you, the minute that you get lazy, there's somebody standing in the wings right now waiting to take your place. So hopefully somebody hears that, it resonates, um, and when you run your business, just never give up and keep trying. Great advice there. I want to continue um, on your advice for entrepreneurs. Uh, tell me a little bit about how entrepreneurs can find opportunities in this increasingly digital economy. Um, so the opportunities are endless. The advantage that we have as entrepreneurs is that we live in a digital age, right? Everything is on the internet. Everything is at your fingertips. So you don't have to go far and wide to find the information that you need. Um, what I want entrepreneurs to know is that information could be free. You don't have to pay for the information. Instagram is free. Social media is free. Facebook, Twitter. There's opportunities where you can market your business and spaces where the resources are already there for you. And as you grow your business, yeah, one day um, you could use financial resources to be able to pay for those things, but you can grow your business on TikTok, right? We live in a, um, what do you call it? A, a viral age. So all it takes is that one viral video to make your business go to the next level, whether it is a product or service. All it takes is that one post for the course of your business to change for the rest of your life. Um, so using uh, digital resources to be able to grow your business is the best thing. And starting with the free options first, because they do exist. When I started Slutty Vegan, I, I used social media to my benefit. I did not pay for celebrities to eat my food. What I did is I had celebrities eat my food and they posted on their own. And what I did is I would rip their videos and put it on my social media page. That is how I grew in the digital space. Um, and it's not difficult at all. Now, because we're in a economic downturn, because there's so much inflation happening, you really got to get creative. You know why? Because people want to have a really good reason to spend their money. So give people a good reason to spend their money and get creative with your resources and how you grow your business, especially through the digital space. So in May of this year, you announced you had secured $25 million in funding to open as many as 20 new restaurants. How did you get that funding? And is it still as hard as it seems for small businesses to get funding for expansion? You know, it's interesting because I talk about this all the time. Once upon a time, it was so difficult for Black businesses, minority-owned businesses to get injections of capital to be able to grow their business. It's, it's just the facts, right? Our counterparts have always historically gotten more than us. 
Um, but what I realize now is we are in a ripe age now where black owned businesses, small businesses, minority owned businesses are now getting the recognition that once upon a time they didn't always get. So now there is a open sea of opportunity to be able to get money to fund your business. And partially it's because most big corporations want to be in solidarity with small businesses, especially with everything that happened in the recent years uh, with George Floyd and Rashad Brooks, rest in peace to both of them, and all of the things that are happening in our economy, right? Big businesses want to partner with small businesses so that they can feel real, right? Because people are no longer buying products they are tapping into the ingenuity of businesses and the ethos, right? So when it was time for me to get money, it wasn't because I was just a business that was just cool. No, they saw the environment that I was creating, the frequency and the energy and the vibration, and they wanted to tap into what I was building, which is the ecosystem for people who look like me and for people who seek opportunity. So was it difficult for me to get that money? Absolutely not. But I was very intentional about it. And I'm speaking again to entrepreneurs, make sure that you are intentional when you are seeking money, building a relationship with somebody who's interested in giving you money, because it wasn't so much about the physical capital that they were giving me. I wanted to be in partnership with people who can help to take my business to the next level through their resources, through their advice, and through their experiences that they learned. Slutty Vegan has always been a very... Um, great cash flow business. But when we started to get an injection of capital, what it did is it put us in the room with the people who have grown and scaled businesses to billion dollar companies. So, you know, there's a saying when you're in the room with the right people, you are going to start rubbing shoulders with the right people. So we get to rub shoulders with those people and I'm very happy about it. Um, but it was not difficult and it is not difficult in my opinion people to get money. All you have to do is build something so special that it's irresistible that'll make people start banging your door down so that they can throw money at you. Such good advice there. Um, I, I really want to switch to the impact of the pandemic. Uh, as we know, your industry was hit pretty hard. Um, how much of a challenge was it for you to keep your employees on the payroll during COVID? <laughs> oh, very hard. It is hard today. Um, and I'd be lying if I sit here and like, oh no, it's great. No, that's a lie. And every single business, restaurant industry, I can guarantee you for a fact are dealing with the same thing. What I realized is through this pandemic, we have created more entrepreneurs than we have ever created in America's history, in my opinion. Uh, most people have realized that they can create their own businesses and build their own pathway to generational wealth. So why would they want to come to work for me? Right? So while I have a great company and people want to be a part of the company, I also realize I'm encouraging people to be entrepreneurs. So specifically speaking for myself, was it difficult and is it difficult? Yes. But what we've done is we've gotten creative and started incentivizing the employees in a different way to say, okay, if you still want to be an entrepreneur, you could still work here and be an entrepreneur. And we're going to incentivize you to make you feel like you are a part of this growth that we're having. So what does that look like for us? that was raising the minimum wage, that was providing full benefits for everybody in the company who works at least 40 hours a week. So that means that restaurant crew members can get advantages of um, insurance. That was also providing life insurance for every single one of my employees if they need it that we pay for. Those, in um, those incentives really help the employees to feel like they're wanted, to feel like they're needed, and they want to stay and grow with the company. And I realize the difference now because before, while we paid our, our employees good, 
there wasn't such an investment. And I can be totally transparent and say this because I'm that kind of entrepreneur. But now they feel like they are a part of the big picture. And when employees feel like they're a part of the big picture, then they'll stay around longer. So our turnover rate isn't as high as it used to be. Yeah. Do people come and go sometimes? Yes. You know, it's a business. But at the end of the day, what I realize is, is when you show your loyalty to the employees, it will always show their loyalty with you. Mm, that's, a, that's a good, good, good piece of advice there. I, it bleeds into my next question. And, and maybe this is one in the same, but if there's more here, I'd like to dig a little bit more. Um, you know, the, the massive growth of your company really occurred during the pandemic. Tell me a little bit about how you were able to, to succeed at a time when so many other businesses failed. I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, you know, that is probably the most beautiful story about Slutty Vegan. You know, I like to say Slutty Vegan had its meteoric rise in the midst of the pandemic, right? So while the world was seemingly falling apart on this side, you had this small business that was bringing the world together on this side in the middle of a pandemic. I opened up four locations in a pandemic. So that tells you that we created something that people wanted to be a part of. So I, many of my peers had to close their businesses because they couldn't keep in, um, employees or they couldn't get people to come through the door. But what I did is I got super creative, right? We took a pause down for about two weeks to just press restart and make sure that we had everything that we needed to provide a sustainable business for the people. And what I'm interested in is making sure that my business maintains sustainability. And how do we do that? We do that by making sure that our marketing is top tier by making sure that people are always talking about Slutty Vegan and showing people the core of what we've dealt with in America for years. No matter the tribulation, we always rise above. No matter what we see around us and the energy that tries to take over us, and that energy is the pandemic, it's COVID, it's the recession, it's all of these things, we still find a way to rise above. And that energy and that spirit resonated with so many people, which made people want to come back. Spe specifically speaking, a foundation, the Pinky Co. Foundation, when I realized that there was a pandemic and people weren't uh, eating like they used to at restaurants, right? And they weren't supporting other businesses like they were used to. We realized that we wanted to help organizations, right? We started to pay the local rents of businesses so that they didn't close. We paid um, the balances of college students so that they could graduate. We've donated fruits and vegetables. Um, we've, we've paid the insurance of families that needed it. Um, right now, we're currently um, providing life insurance for black men in Atlanta that make $30,000 or less. And there's a long list of all the things that we do, but we did that in the middle of the pandemic. So people realize that, yes, although we are in a trying time, this is the time that we need each other the most. And we linked on that. Um, and that has driven the success of the business for us to be able to grow. That was a great segue to what I wanted to touch on next, which is your philanthropic work. Um, you mentioned the Pinky Cole Foundation. I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the importance of supporting future entrepreneurs and small business owners from un underrepresented groups? You know, it is. first of all, I love the fact that I have a foundation, right? So before I was just helping everybody else and like my CFO was like, uh, no, we got to put this on paper. You are helping everybody. We got to track this. So I created my foundation in 2019, and it was called the Pinky Cole Foundation. And I really wanted to build that generational wealth gap. So just like what I told you, uh, some of the things that we've done, 
um, was it's really a way to be a resource to the community. I'm all about building an ecosystem. And if I can build that ecosystem with the consumer in mind, then there's a big one for everybody, right? We get a lot of business. We give a lot to the community. And it makes sense. And I believe that is the secret formula of success for small businesses, right? Uh, and I'm not saying like, give all you got out, right? If you don't have it, don't give it, right? If you, if you can't afford to give it out, don't do that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that if you have a valuable business and you can create an infrastructure where people can benefit off of the business, even when you're providing them a service, that is when your business will do good. The community will do good. People will talk about your business and people will continue to rotate in and out of your business. That is what I learned about that. So for entrepreneurs who are trying to grow their businesses, you need a philanthropic arm. That philanthropic arm will show that you are not just a business that sells product. It will show that you are a business that cares about ecosystem, that cares about community, that cares about recycling the dollar. That is what we've done. And it allowed us to position ourselves in a lane outside of all the other lanes because we are community-based business. And community-based business always wins. So my advice to entrepreneurs who are listening to this, make sure that you create a community-based business first, um, and then everything will follow. Um, I'm a living testament of it, and, and I continue to do that. And even when I got investors, I made it very clear that I wanted to continue to be a community-driven business so that you know the community will understand that we are not just here to make money. We are here to make the community better. So we have about a minute left, Pinky, and I uh, really want to go back to the commencement speech uh, that you gave at your alma mater, Clark Atlanta University. Um, you said, quote, here's the truth. You don't know what you're made of until it's been battle tested and proven. I want to know, what have you learned about yourself? Ooh, I learned about me is that I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm doing everything right. Sometimes you don't always have to know. You don't never have to know. You just go with the flow, right? And what that flow is, it's that spirit. Like I'm an energy person, right? So I've, I've amassed so much success in a very short amount of time. And I look up and I ask myself, like, I've done things where I don't even know the answer to that. I did not go to an Ivy League school, right? I did not, like, read a gazillion books before I started Slutty Vegan. Right. I, I did not go to like all these big courses and pay all top dollar to, to hear people and celebrities speak. I didn't do that. But what I realized is, is that not knowing was all right. And you don't have to know everything. You just got to be excited about the journey. And what keeps me is that I remain confident in my journey, even in the times that I don't know. Right. I've gone through a whole lot. So when I say battle tested, battle tested, I've, I've been through the mud. I've went flat broke. I've lost loved ones. Right. I had moments where I wanted to give up, but I realized it was in those moments that made me realize that I got work to do. I got people watching me. I got people that believe in me. So, you know, life has been so good to me and I don't know anything, but I know everything that I need to know. I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, Pinky Cole, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'll be back in a moment. The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Lucy Rutia, CEO of Acción Opportunity Fund, the leading nonprofit organization providing small businesses across the U.S. with access to responsible loans, coaching, and support networks. 
With me today are two accomplished small business owners who were recently awarded a $25,000 Love Tito Small Business Grant sponsored by the Tito's Handmade Vodka in honor of their 25th anniversary and administered by Acción Opportunity Fund. Antoine Brinson is the founder of Culinary Concepts AB in Charlotte, Virginia, and Danielle Rottenberg is co-founder of Remark Glass in Philadelphia. Antoine and Danielle, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me and for all you do to make your communities and our economy more vibrant. Antoine, I'm gonna start with you. Uh, the mission of Culinary Concepts AB is to empower people and build communities in the kitchen. Why is community so important to you as a small business owner? You know, there's a African proverb that goes, if you wanna go uh, quickly, go alone. If you wanna go further, go together. And I think at the ethos of what we stand for, Culinary Concepts is all about moving together within the community. Culinary Concepts is, we, we are all about removing barriers for folks uh, and creating equitable opportunities. And we do this through our training programs. Um, some of the ways is by prioritizing low to no cost programs for our students and working with employers that offer equitable opportunities by removing barriers such as um, uh, livable wages. They pay livable wages and they, um, they have strong kitchen cultures. Our programs understand that you know, we want to make sure that the folks have the right mindset. So we incorporate life skills into our training programs. And at the end, when the students graduate, we connect them to uh, career pathways uh, with employers that are willing to invest in them. In the end, our training programs, they're a win-win for both the individual and for the employers. At the core of culinary concepts and our workforce development, community makes everything work for us. That's great. Danielle, your business, Remark Glass, is similarly dedicated not to just generating revenue, but also generating impact by keeping thousands of pounds of glass out of landfills. Why is giving back such a critical part of your business model? So honestly, I don't think of it so much as giving back, but as doing our part. While we started this business in a creative design space, blowing glass from old bottles, Remark Glass is now disrupting a system in which recyclable materials aren't making their way out of the waste stream. And the community and our environment are inherently at the heart of our mission. And with dwindling natural resources and limited space in that landfill, it's really now a critical time to start thinking about source materials and our ability to reuse um, as manufacturers, as makers alike. So um, while we're all affected um, every day by waste and there's really a, a lack of transparency on the part of our public waste systems, we hope to continue to educate and to involve the community in what we believe is the start of a solution to an ongoing problem. Wow. Starting a business is a huge investment of time, capital, and passion. And there are so many barriers to becoming a small business owner. <clears throat> Most importantly, access to financing. Antoine, what advice would you give to first-time entrepreneurs? You know, the, the best advice that I can give someone is surround yourself with the right people. And that's, that doesn't mean surrounding yourself with people that are going to tell you yes every time you, you, you say something great. 
Um, but it means surrounding yourself with folks that are going to challenge you to think differently, people that are going to push you, people that are going to help you strategize. You know, within our network, you know, if it wasn't for, you know, the small business development here in Charlottesville, we wouldn't have known about the Tito's grant. So, you know, be engaged and, and, and make sure that the people that you have around you are genuinely adding value to you and your business. Thank you. You were both recently awarded a Love Tito Small Business Grant from Tito's Handmade Vodka, which provides $25,000 to small business owners who are following their passion and making great impact in their community. Danielle, what does receiving this grant mean to you and to your business? So I really think that one of the major hurdles for small businesses in the past few years has been a desire to make considerable improvements for our team while also navigating the waters of such heavy inflation. Our staff is amazing, um, creative and talented, and they're dedicated to making change alongside us. However, the cost of living has skyrocketed, as we all know, um, and we want to make sure that we can grow our team and business in a responsible way and that people can, you know, take care of themselves and their families and feel a safe haven in their job. Opportunities like the Love Tito's grant supports existing jobs and job creation and in turn leads social enterprises like ours to continue building their impact. I'm incredibly grateful to larger organizations like Tito's and like Axion Opportunity Fund for their financial support and their public recognition um, to businesses like ours that can really help to encourage positive change in the world. Wow, Danielle and Antoine, thank you again for your inspiring entrepreneurship. And now I'll hand it over to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello again, I'm Danielle Lebrow, Tech at Work writer for the Washington Post. We're gonna continue the program with the mayor of one of the countless cities in America whose small business owners have been challenged the past couple of years. He is the mayor of New Bedford, Massachusetts, John Mitchell. Welcome to Washington Post Live, John. Well, thanks for having me, Danielle. And remember, we always want to hear from you, our audience. You can share your thoughts and questions for guests on Washington Post Live by tweeting at Post Live. Mayor Mitchell, how important are small businesses to the economy of your city of around 100,000 residents? Yeah, well, of course, uh, it goes without saying that small businesses are important everywhere in cities and towns of, of every size. And, and, you know, for good reason, right? We talk about small businesses as being the mechanism through which so many have pursued the American dream. They're the source of of uh, if not the lion's share of jobs in America's economy, uh, certainly a large proportion of them. Um, and they are in many ways, the spice of the cities that they operate in. I would go, uh, I would take those general observations that everybody accepts just a step further and, and say that in cities like mine, uh, the vitality of small businesses are even more important. And by that, I mean this, New Bedford is, uh, a city of 100,000, and we are not part of a major metro. We, we sort of sit on our own bottom with our own suburbs and, and our own smaller metropolitan area. And like other cities uh, of our type, right, with especially those with an industrial past, you know, we don't have Fortune 100 uh, companies anchoring the regional economy or major research institutions. Uh, 
our economy is driven by small businesses and and so much of our identity is is connected with small businesses many of our immigrant neighborhoods small businesses that have turned over with every new immigration wave over decade decade after decade and people feel a sense of belonging to their neighborhoods in part because of the small businesses that they recognize and associate with so um, you know for us especially as we entered the pandemic so much of our efforts we're centered around stabilizing our small businesses. And I think we'll be talking a little bit about that in a moment. Absolutely. Actually, that's exactly what I want to talk about. Um, what have been the biggest challenges facing these businesses um, that you've seen? And what have you done to help them? Well, it, it's so our response has evolved over time. But in the early days of the pandemic, of course, none of us in, in public office or elsewhere had a full grip of what we on what we were facing, right? We hadn't had a pandemic and uh, since well, since 1918, and so uh, we really didn't know what was unfolding and what the, the threats were. But as we started to learn a little bit more about COVID-19, we understood that um, we had to sort of break through certain perceptions in order to um, enable small businesses to continue to to, uh, to move forward, to stabilize. Like in the first month of the pandemic, our un unemployment rate here in New Bedford went from about 5% to uh, about 24%. Right? Businesses shut down, and this wasn't by virtue of uh, any government orders at all. Uh, people didn't want to go into uh, into restaurants and shops and so forth. And so you know, my, my job as mayor and, and to a great degree was to ensure that the public understood that it was okay to go in and order from uh, a, a takeout pizza joint, for instance. And so I would uh, really within the first two weeks of the arrival of the pandemic, I was going around the city, mask on and all, but showing up at places and ordering out and posting it on uh, social media so that everybody understood it was okay to do that. And then we took extra steps in terms of you know, literally using city departments to build out sidewalks to uh, offer so that restaurants could offer up uh, outdoor dining. Um, you know, New Bedford, of course, has a big fishing industry with the largest fishing port in America. We took a number of steps to ensure that uh, the you know, that boats could go out safely um, during, during the early part of the pandemic and helping with uh, helping crews social um, uh, social distance and to take other precautionary measures. So it, it was a, a, initially a big scramble, right? But then other things started to set in, right? So there were social distancing measures in place and there were you know, mask requirements and so forth here as there were just about everywhere else, at least in the early going. And so people needed to understand um, that folks were still open for business. And again, the social media activity was important in that, in that regard. But we also understood that so many businesses were losing employees and that it was actually safe to work uh, in, in a number of these play in, in, in all these uh, all the small businesses that we were trying to uh, to stabilize. Um, and then as, as time went on, um, you know, we saw the effects of still greater staffing shortages and inflation. And so helping small businesses with working capital was a big part of what we attempted to do through loans and sort of grant programs. And, I can uh, go into a little more detail about, but it, suffice it to say, stabilizing our small businesses required us uh, to work very, very closely with them, to have an understanding of what their challenges were, 
and to try with the resources that we're getting from the federal government, the state government, and our own resources to ensure that they could pay the, the bills, they could hire folks up, that they could uh, they could pay for pay for all their vendors, that they could keep the lights on literally in, in their businesses. And so, um, you know, for it was an iterative process uh, along the way. The goal really was stabilization and then get businesses back on a pathway of growth. Are there new challenges that they're facing now? Well, there, there are, right? And so, you know, they range from, uh, again, just feeling the distortionary effects of, of heightened inflation, right? That's, that has caused, so, you know, there's a restaurant literally a block from where I'm seated that, you know, sold $12 uh, uh, tostada salads uh, that some uh, suddenly became uh, much more expensive for them to uh, to uh, to make they started because of supply chain bottlenecks uh, those salads started to cost them nearly uh, nearly fourteen dollars to make right so they were actually losing money for a while making salads and that's just one uh, one example of of many uh, of course we still see the effect of of uh, great resignation still many people aren't coming back uh, to work um, and so that that's starting to play out uh, that's starting to sort itself out now to a certain degree, but not nearly fast enough. Every small business in the city and in our region is still feeling like they don't have the staff they need to get the job done. Um, and then, of course, you know, they're looking at uh, heightened interest uh, rates and the possibility that uh, reinvesting in their business might uh, might prove difficult. So what we, we have done is, in addition to providing working capital to keep things going. We've created new loan and grant couple and new loan programs and couple them with grant programs to make the cost of capital lower so that they can start pour money back into their businesses. And we've also uh, created uh, for many of them uh, two programs that I think are, are very important. And I'll, and I'll say this, right? So there's the, the effort is here is around stabilizing small businesses and getting them on a pathway of growth. But at the same time, we want to make sure that small businesses are continuing to project their energy into the city. It's been a long pandemic, and we want to make sure that what businesses are, are doing in the way of getting themselves back on their feet is actually being felt in the community, as it were. So we have invested a considerable amount of federal money into a new storefront program uh, for small businesses that had uh, had over 90 applications and we're getting that money out the door now and it leverages both public sector and private sector funds other public and private sector funds as well so what we're going to see across uh, the city in a very inclusive way are, are businesses seeming apparently to the public coming back to life with new doors new awnings and you know these these little things like that give people confidence that um, you know the city's alive and that it's worth patronizing those businesses. Uh, we've also spent uh, a fair amount of money uh, helping artists, working artists get back on their feet. New Bedford is blessed with a fairly large artist community, one of the larger ones per capita in the country. And we have created a set of programs that offer technical assistance, business technical assistance to them, like how an artist might write a business plan, which is not always intuitive to a lot of artists, uh, so that they can understand how uh, they can sell their wares and, and promote them in the city, as well as uh, directly funding uh, certain art projects, again, as well as performing arts projects. So that, again, we're projecting energy back out in the, in, into the economy. We're boosting consumer 
and resident confidence, uh, all the while supporting small businesses. So you mentioned a couple of things there that I, I want to return to. You talked about COVID, high inflation, supply chain gridlock, the great resignation. I mean, it seems like this would have had a really big impact uh, economically on your region. Can you tell me a little bit about the effect it's had? Well, it, it, you know, it's been a little bit of a mixed bag. There have been some successes along the way. The, the, um, initially, as it was in many places, the, the arrival of the pandemic was a real trauma on uh, the city, right? Unemployment spiked. People were, you know, were you know, retreated back into their homes, of course. And we sort of remember all that from, from two years ago. Here, it played out in a number of ways. We still have very much an industrial economy. Um, we've had, we had some factory closures because of outbreaks and, and such. And what we've tried to do, again, is just is try to project, project confidence and stability along uh, the way. So, you know, we have seen through some of these uh, uh, programs in which we're providing, we've provided working capital to small businesses. Some do very well. As it turns out, you know, they, they, one of the things we're most proud of is that during the first two years of the pandemic, New Bedford actually was a net plus seven for new restaurants. That is to say, during this period in which the restaurant industry took it on the chin in the United States, here in New Bedford, an older industrial city in the Northeast, we actually added seven more restaurants than we lost. And we attribute some of that to you know, the great work that so many entrepreneurs did. And um, as we heard from Pinky Cole in the first segment, really pivoting. Um, uh, uh, wisely early in the pandemic and meeting their customers where they are and thinking creatively. Uh, the loan and grant programs also helped providing, uh, again, working capital, some infusion of cash right at the right time. We were able to keep the number of these businesses going. And so we don't see all sorts of boarded up storefronts at this point. It's not to say they're all out of the woods yet. We continue with these programs and they're, and they're being heavily subscribed. Uh, because again, we're still feeling you know, the distortionary effects of the pandemic still, staffing and inflation and so forth, but at least it feels like we're on a, on a pretty solid pathway forward. So I want to talk a little bit more about the money. Uh, you announced earlier this year, as you mentioned, that the city is providing $3.3 million in grants for local businesses from the American Rescue Plan Act. Tell me, how is that money being used and what requirements did the government have for businesses to access those funds? Well, so, so the, the ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act uh, regulations lay out a whole set of uh, preconditions as to you know, who may receive the money and so forth. What it boils down to in general is that, you know, that, that businesses have to demonstrate having experienced some loss during the pandemic, but the regulations are also forward-looking. They allow for, uh, for cities like mine to, uh, to underwrite uh, efforts to promote new business formation. And so what we've tried to do is, um, again, supporting businesses emerging from the pandemic. We're also supporting uh, businesses that are, are, just start, are just starting to form now and under current, under, in our uncertain times right now, we're providing them the technical assistance and seed capital to get going. So that program uh, is the New Bedford Forward Program, you know, the MB Forward Program. And you know, the idea there is that uh, we're providing uh, entrepreneurs uh, right up front uh, uh, $10,000 in cash if they go through 
uh, a series of training exercises with a number of local institutions, community colleges, accelerators, and such, put together a business plan to get the sense of uh, their cash flow projections and so they, to, to get them going. And we're starting to see uh, a real uptick in subscription uh, on that effort. And, and so, you know, the idea is here that, you know, we, we don't want to just sort of go back to where we were when the pandemic started. We want, we want those the businesses that were around then to be around now and to be on their feet, but we also want to be accelerating forward as things start to stabilize as they appear that they might in the next few months. So, Mayor, I want to talk about another program um, that you guys started called an Enhanced Facade Program, and it's helping uh, businesses get improved storefronts, uh, raising their curb appeal. Tell me, how's that working out? I think it's working out very well. It's, again, businesses weren't reinvesting in themselves in the last year at the same rates they were pre-pandemic, right? No surprise there. Um, but you know, when we think about small business investment, we often talk about, as, that, as I have, about working capital and paying your, you know, the everyday the utility bills and staff salaries and so forth. But the outward manifestation of so many small businesses uh, around the country is that storefront on a busy street. You know, it's that restaurant we, we recognize by the color of its awning or the, the sign on the door and ensuring that giving businesses a little bit of a push to um, to giving themselves a little bit of a facelift can go a long way, not only in helping them, but also helping the neighborhoods uh, in which they, they do their business. And so, you know, we have a number of business districts around the city that have storefronts of, of the type that I just described. And what we've tried to do is ensure that there's uh, that uh, they're, they're getting access to funds to do a very generous set of funds to uh, to get uh, to reinvest in those storefronts. So we set up this enhanced facade program, which offers um, a 75% match um, for uh, for investments in a business's storefront up to $40,000. And so, in other words, you know, for every quarter you put in, you'll get 75 cents from the city of New Bedford. Uh, up to $40,000, which is in most instances plenty enough to do a really nice storefront. And so we've had uh, at this point 90 applicants. Uh, we think that there will probably be about 75 that will be fully eligible. We'll spend, you know, between two and three million dollars in ARPA funds for that purpose. But it's not a total giveaway, right? The matching requirement ensures some level of accountability. We're not just handing out funds. We were expecting each of these small businesses to have to ante up something as, as if for no other reason to ensure that um, that what we're investing in as, as the city government is something that they also are willing to, to pony up for too. So um, so we, we think that that is going to stretch our dollars even more and taxpayer dollars. But at the end, it's going to have a really a very visible uh, improvement across uh, the city and, and, and many of the most uh, most densely populated and uh, heavily trafficked business areas that we have. So we're really bullish on it. Mayor, we have a few minutes left, so I'm going to try to squeeze in a couple questions here. Um, New Bedford is known for a large fishing fleet and seafood industry. Can you tell me how the maritime economy has weathered the past two plus years? Yeah, it, it, so early on, they, uh, the, the price of, of many fish uh, crashed here, and, and 
because people weren't going out to restaurants in the United States and, and in Europe. New Bedford's a big source of America's seafood, right? About 8% of the fish landed in the United States or landed in the port of New Bedford. And so um, when we saw the prices crash, uh, boats didn't go out. It wasn't profitable for them to go out. And that meant that fishermen weren't fishing. They weren't making a living. As, as uh, restaurants started to come back open, as grocery stores could, started to sell more seafood around, around the country, uh, the prices uh, came back up. But we also wanted to make sure that we did everything we could uh, to uh, backstop the maritime economy. So eventually we did things like, you know, we had, a t we had offered up testing, free testing for fishermen before they got on the boat so that there wouldn't be outbreaks uh, out, uh, at, out at sea, right? That would cause them not to go out the next time and so forth. We had vaccination programs for fishermen uh, as well. And we tried very hard uh, to work with our federal delegation to promote um, the consumption of, of seafood as, as well. And, you know, by and large right now, it's, it's the seafood industry has weathered the storm. The prices have come back up, fishermen fishing again. And now, you know, the big thing next uh, for New Bedford is the offshore wind industry. Uh, Vineyard Wind uh, will be America's first uh, industrial scale offshore wind project. And that will deploy from the uh, from the from our docks uh, come six months from now, and so that promises to to um, that represents a, a large potential infusion into our regional economy. So that we're very um, we're we're getting back on track and really starting to to move forward as as the maritime in the maritime economy right now. Understood, um, Mayor. I want to ask you one last question: How does government balance spending taxpayers' money on supporting a business that may be failing? With offering assistance to these struggling business owners, it seems like you know a, a tricky balance there. It is a tricky. That is the trickiest balance, I think, Danielle. It's um, you know we were just talking about the enhanced storefront program uh, a minute ago, and there were a number of folks in the city who said, you know what, uh, you should just give them the money, give everybody ten thousand, every store owner a ten thousand dollars, no questions asked, and. You know, so I asked the question, well, what if that's a failing business? We will just be, you know, just be throwing away money. And um, I, I didn't think that would be responsible. So the way, so we established a match requirement that at least ensured that the, the uh, business owner thought that the project they were applying for was worthy enough to spend their own money, right? So that added some accountability to uh, to the process. You know, we had the same, if these, if these, if these programs aren't work, though, you have to get money out the door and you can't, um, there isn't room for a whole lot of second guessing about how the money is spent. So there's a tricky balance between accountability and being effective and getting money out, out the door. And it's something that we monitor closely. We, we have a number of guidelines uh, and in the application process in which the, the, the store owner has to, uh, the, the small business owner has to demonstrate need and we watch it. We watch it very closely because uh, the money, look, it's hard-earned taxpayer dollars uh, that we're deploying, and, and uh, taxpayers deserve uh, that that money go as far as possible. Understood. Well, uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, Mayor. Thank you so much for joining us today and giving us such valuable insights. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Daniel. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.